Colleen Slemmer went to the Job Corps program in Knoxville, Tennessee, with the hope for a better career. Instead, she ran right into someone who has been described as a budding serial killer. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to this week's episode. I took a break last week. I usually announce those ahead of time, but I had already recorded the episode when I decided to take the week off. There are a number of compounding reasons why I took a week off at the last minute, none of which are terribly interesting, except that part of the reason was because I got to spend time with Josh Hallmark, the host of True Crime BS. It was his birthday weekend. So a huge Crime Lines happy birthday to Josh, one of my absolute favorite people in this world. And everyone should go download every episode of True Crime BS as a gift to him. But if you want to wish Josh a happy birthday in person, you can see him, you can see me, Nina from Already Gone, the Prosecutor's Podcast, the Defense Diaries Podcast, and so many more in Savannah on September 25th at the Savannah Crime Expo. There is a meetup afterwards in the works, so even if you don't come to the expo, if you can get yourself to Savannah on the evening of September 25th, we're all going to be there. So come say hi, come say happy birthday to Josh, come hang out with us, let's talk some true crime. I will update you when I have the details, but they will also be on my social media as soon as I have them. That's probably the best place to look for any announcements. So Savannah, September 25th. I will see you there, I hope. So let's go ahead and get into this week's episode. You've been waiting a whole extra week for it. This was suggested to me by my friend Jess, who, as you know, also researches for me at times. So she also researched it. She suggested it and she did the research. So huge, huge thank you to her for it. I will give a warning at the top that this case does involve a particularly brutal murder. The details of the attack are actually relevant here, so there are going to be some graphic details more than I usually share. So this case takes place in Knoxville, Tennessee, home to the University of Tennessee's main campus, and Knoxville also has, or had, it's since shut down, a Job Corps center that was very close to the university. Job Corps is a federally funded program that launched in 1964. It is a residential job training program. It is entirely free to attend. The requirements are that you are between the ages of 16 and 24 and that you've had some type of hardship that put a block between you and your education. The goal is to provide a high school equivalency diploma as well as job skills to those in the program so they can move forward into careers afterwards. Food, housing, school supplies, medical care, sometimes even some child care is provided. The vast majority of people attending these programs do live in dorms on a Job Corps campus. They have them in every state, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico. So for those who've had a good experience with Job Corps, it's amazing. For those who have not, it's not. I'm not the podcast to cover the ups and downs of this particular program outside of the context of this episode. We took that journey through this federal labor program because this is where the case starts and it's relevant to what happened. Colleen Slemmer 
started going to the Job Corps program in Knoxville right before her 19th birthday. She had been born in Pennsylvania, but she moved to Florida with her mother after her parents split up. So she grew up in a small town in northern Florida with her mom and her stepfather, but she spent her holidays and summer vacations in Pennsylvania with her father. Colleen was close to her immediate family and her extended family. She had a very energetic and caring personality that really drew people in. In the ninth grade, Colleen did drop out of high school. She grew frustrated as she struggled with a significant reading disability. With no high school diploma, she was working minimum wage jobs, mostly in fast food, for a few years when she learned about the Job Corps program, and it seemed like the perfect solution to her. The idea of having to first get your GED and then go to a training program can be overwhelming, particularly when you have a learning disability and you don't have the funds to pay for GED prep classes or a tutor or anything like that. Job Corps would let her get her GED while doing the training program at the same time. They would give her the help she needed at no cost to her. The program Colleen wanted was in computer programming, and that was not offered at the Job Corps closer to her in Florida. So she instead enrolled in the program in Knoxville, Tennessee. Like any parent of a college-age student, Colleen's mother, May, was a little worried about this. Just the normal parenting anxiety that comes when our kids go out on their own for the first time. And this was eight hours away from home. So it's not like May could just stop in and check on her. Colleen couldn't just come home for the weekends. But Colleen herself wasn't worried. She was excited when she arrived in Knoxville in September 1994, just weeks before her 19th birthday. Her excitement was short-lived. Colleen quickly became disillusioned with the situation. Not all Job Corps centers are the same, and this one was plagued with mismanagement and a massive lack of supervision slash security. Residents and business owners in the area complained about it. To give you just an idea of the situation, when the Job Corps Center in Knoxville shut down about seven months after Colleen arrived there, the crime rate in the area dropped noticeably, and that's according to the Knoxville mayor, someone who would know. Colleen found that the dorms, which were an old Holiday Inn hotel that had been converted over, she found them to be dirty and graffitied. Belongings were stolen out of her room within the first few weeks she was there. Colleen also told her mom about three students. She didn't name them, but she said they were harassing her because they thought she liked one girl's boyfriend. Her mother told her to go ahead and report it, which she did, but nothing was done. Colleen was tempted to just turn around and go home, but her mom reminded her that she had just six months in this program and she really owed it to herself to stick it out. Things had not gotten better by the Christmas break when Colleen went to go visit her father for the holiday. But when she returned to campus, she knew she didn't have that much longer to go. She was more than halfway done, and she would be home and away from the situation soon enough. And it really was those three students she had trouble with that were the biggest part of why Colleen wanted out. 
They were still, months later, not leaving her alone. The ringleader of the trio was an 18-year-old named Krista Pike. Krista was at Job Corps because she had, more or less, run out of options. When Krista was born, frankly, neither of her parents were interested in being parents. Her father pretty much split, and her mother usually left her in the care of her grandmother while she worked and then went out partying with friends. This grandmother was known to be abusive to her children and now to her little granddaughter. When Krista was two, her mother sent her to live with her other grandmother, her paternal grandmother, while she moved to North Carolina with her boyfriend. Though Krista was a difficult child, she and her paternal grandmother were inseparable. Her grandmother was the only person Krista ever felt truly loved her, and sadly, that appears to have been true. When her grandmother died in 1988, when Krista was 12, she was inconsolable. She lost the only consistent adult she had, and she attempted to take her own life. Again, she was just 12 years old. In the aftermath of this loss and the attempted suicide, she was not given any long-term counseling or treatment. Instead, she moved in with her mother, which was not a constant or stable situation. If there was a conflict between Krista and the man her mother was either dating or married to at the time, Krista would be the one who had to leave. She would usually go to her father's house, someone who hadn't been in her life very much. He had remarried and had younger children and was not interested in Krista being there. So the same thing would happen there that happened at her mother's house. There would be a conflict and Krista would be told to leave. One time, her dad kicked her out for getting bad grades. When she was 17, he even tried to sign over his parental rights, but she turned 18 before everything went through, so it didn't really matter at that point. Now, this is not to say that Krista wasn't a difficult child who turned into a much more difficult and unstable teenager, particularly when she started using drugs and alcohol at a young age. She even used these substances with her mother on at least one occasion. Krista became violent, even pulling a knife on her mother's boyfriend at one point. I definitely do not want to make it sound like she was always kicked out for no reason or just for being mouthy or backtalk or whatever we might be imagining. She pulled a knife on someone. But there were no attempts to then get Krista actual help. Mental health care in the U.S. is not always easy to access. I absolutely recognize that. But there does not appear to have been an attempt made to get Krista help. There was no school to step in since she had dropped out as soon as she could. So instead of getting help, she was just moved between houses until she turned 18 and was out of options. Her mother pushed her into going to Job Corps, hoping it would give Krista something to move forward with and to support herself. At first, Krista actually seemed interested in the program. But then Krista started getting in trouble at Job Corps, largely for picking fights and general behavioral issues. 
Around the time Colleen was counting down until she was finally done with the program, Krista was on her last strike. One more issue and Job Corps would kick her out of the program. Krista wanted nothing more than to stay at Job Corps, not necessarily for the education or even because she had nowhere else to go, but because she had fallen in love with another student, a 17-year-old named Daryl Ship. And that was the root of the conflict between Krista and Colleen, sort of. Krista had it in her mind Colleen was flirting with Tadaryl and trying to steal him away. The reality was that Colleen barely knew Tadaryl, hadn't flirted with him, and had no interest in him. Her friends all confirmed this. Krista seems to have made up this conflict in her own head, and no one knows how, no one knows why. One theory is that Tadaryl planted it in her head to get her riled up a bit, and Krista ran with it. Another theory is that she had some other less definable issue with Colleen and used this as an excuse to harass her. And maybe it's a combination of those theories. Krista and Tadaryl were two of the three people Colleen complained were bullying her. The third was a girl named Shadala Peterson, who was a friend of Krista's. After months of this going on, on January 12, 1995, Krista offered an olive branch to Colleen. She said she wanted to put their issues behind them and to at least call a truce so they could move forward with some type of peace. She even invited Colleen to go hang out with her to Daryl and Shadala to show that they were ready to be nice to her. Colleen, who was ready to make life at Job Corps a lot easier for herself, accepted the invitation both to make amends and also to hang out. They decided that they were going to walk to a nearby video store to pick up a movie. Colleen talked to her mom on the phone and cut the call a little short, and she mentioned these plans to go rent a movie. She did not mention that she was going with the person who had been making her life miserable, just that she was going to watch a movie with a friend. Around 8 p.m., all four students signed out of the dorm. At 10.15 that night, another student saw only three of them return. Colleen Slemmer was missing. It was early the next morning, Friday the 13th of January, that a maintenance man was walking by a steam plant when he saw some broken and crushed bushes covered in large amounts of blood. When he first looked, he thought he was looking at an animal that had been mauled. However, he could see the shoes and pants, which were the only identifiable signs that this body was human. That's how badly beaten it was. The police arrived and marked off a huge crime scene. Blood and other evidence of an attack was spread over 6,000 square feet. But there was a spot with a large pool of blood where the bulk of the attack appeared to have occurred. And then there were signs that the body had been dragged from that point. The purpose was clearly to conceal it since it was brought to an area with denser brush. The Job Corps dorm had realized by this point that a student who had gone out the night before had not signed back in and hadn't been seen. And that student was, of course, Colleen Slemmer. With Colleen being noticed missing and the body being found nearby, the two were very soon connected. 
By mid-morning, Colleen's mother, May, was called and informed that Colleen was missing and a body had been found. They asked if Colleen had any physical marks or features they could use to help identify her. Anything like a tattoo, a mole, a birthmark. But there was nothing. They had to wait until they got dental records to confirm that this was Colleen. So go ahead and think about that for a second. We hear about dental records or specific physical characteristics asked for when there is some level of decomposition making identification difficult. But Colleen had only been dead for roughly 12 hours when she was found, yet they still needed dental records to identify her. So if you want to imagine the extent of her injuries, just think about that fact. On autopsy, only the most severe wounds were even cataloged because there wasn't time to note every single mark. It's not that they didn't try to document all of them. It's that they got up to 300 documented injuries and realized they would be there for another day or two if they kept trying to list every mark. The worst thing about this was that almost all of the injuries were inflicted while Colleen was still alive and mostly while she was probably still conscious. Colleen had been tortured. The attack included many stab wounds and slash marks to her entire body, as well as signs of kicking and punching. There was a pentagram carved into her chest. Based on the swelling, bruising, bleeding situation, they knew it happened while Colleen was still alive. It was only after this torture, which lasted 30 to 60 minutes, that Colleen was beaten in the head with a piece of asphalt repeatedly until she was dead. Blunt force trauma to the head was the cause of death, but Colleen would have bled to death anyway. As soon as investigators saw the logbook from Job Corps, they knew who their persons of interest were. Colleen signed out at the exact same time as three other people, Krista Pike, Tadaryl Ship, and Shadala Peterson. And they all came back and signed in without her. It was possible that this was unrelated. Perhaps Colleen left with these three and then went off to do her own thing while they went back to the dorm. That was a possibility that would need to be considered. But it didn't have to be considered for long due to a huge break in the case just hours after Colleen's body was found. Krista and Tadaryl went into the administration office because they needed to get ID cards. When they left, Krista accidentally left her jacket behind. The jacket was turned over to security as a lost item, and then it was immediately turned over to the Knoxville Police Department. Inside the jacket's pocket was a fragment of bone. This piece matched a missing spot from Colleen's fractured skull. Around 4 p.m. that same day, with the crime scene still roped off, a couple of girls showed up looking around. They asked why the area was blocked off, and the officer gave a very basic explanation. He did notice that one of the girls asked most of the questions, and 
In his words, she seemed amused by the whole thing. He just assumed she was nosy, but he did notice that she was wearing a pentagram necklace. It wasn't until later that he learned that Colleen was found with a pentagram carved on her body. That made him think about this curious girl, and he reported the incident to his supervisors. He later identified the girl as Krista Pike. The following day, the day after Colleen's body was found, Krista, Tadaryl, and Shadala were all arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Tadaryl was 17, so he was sent to a juvenile facility, while Krista and Shadala, who were adults, barely, were held on bond. With the three in custody, several witnesses felt safe and secure enough to come forward, and the police learned that Krista had confessed to the murder repeatedly from the time she arrived at the dorm until she was arrested. Not just confessed, but bragged about it. According to one student named Kim, Krista was dancing around on Thursday night after she got back and gave an upbeat retelling of how she stabbed and beat Colleen to death. She even showed off the bone fragment, claiming it was a piece of Colleen's skull. Kim obviously thought that this woman's out of her mind, but she did not report this. All the next day, Krista went to classes with that piece of skull in her jacket pocket. She even brought it to breakfast. Multiple people were shown it and told what it was. Some said they heard in great detail about the attack and that Krista even pointed out blood on her shoe as more evidence she did it. These other teens and young adults also did not report this. I don't know why. The only explanation is that a lot of them grew up in situations or in neighborhoods where you learn to keep yourself to yourself, mind your business and your business alone. So that's really the only explanation we have for why Krista was able to go around confessing for like 24 hours and no one came forward until after she was arrested. But while they did not come forward immediately, they did come forward and they made for solid witnesses. Not just witnesses who implicated Krista in a brutal murder, but people who could speak to her behavior immediately after. I said Krista confessed from the time of the murder until she was arrested, and that's not entirely accurate. She actually kept confessing, waiving her Miranda rights and telling the investigators what happened. The transcription of Krista's recorded confession to the police ran 46 pages long. Not only did she confess in great detail, but when they told her they were going to search her dorm, she consented to it. She was present during the search, pointing out all the evidence they needed, like her blood-stained pants. According to Krista, she asked Colleen to go to Blockbuster with her. Colleen had agreed, and on their way, Krista said she had hidden some weed at a nearby park, so they started walking on an isolated path towards that area to go pick up the weed she said she hid. Krista took investigators along the path that she, Colleen, Tadaryl, and Shadala walked that night to where the attack occurred. Though she did give them all these other details, Krista initially would not say who was with her that night. She had even made it sound at some points like there was just one other person, 
she did use the pronoun he when she referred to that person. Krista said that once they had made it to the steam plant area where the attack happened, she and Colleen had begun arguing. With the protection of the dark night and the trees, Krista struck Colleen. Though Krista tried to portray this as a spontaneous fight, she did bring a small meat cleaver and a box cutter with her for this attack. After striking Colleen a few times, she ordered her to undress from the waist up. Asked why she did this, Krista said she thought if Colleen was topless, she would be less likely to run away because she would be embarrassed being half naked. Krista said the only purpose of the attack on Colleen was to get her to leave Krista alone, even though we know it was Krista who was harassing Colleen. And it seems like Colleen thought that what she was really at risk for was being beat up. She thought she was being jumped because she first told Krista if she didn't stop, she was going to tell Job Corps about the fight and that would get Krista thrown out of the program. But as the attack continued, Colleen must have realized that it wasn't going to end that easily And she started pleading with them. She said she would leave right then and there. She would not even go back to the dorm and get her stuff. She would just walk back to Florida. She would leave them alone, never tell on them, and just disappear out of their lives if only they would let her go. Krista said she kept yelling at Colleen to shut up. She kicked her in the mouth and eventually had her gagged because according to Krista, it was hard to hurt someone who was talking. Krista said the person with her had hit Colleen. He was the one who carved the pentagram into her chest. He held her down, and he had prevented her from escaping while she tried to get away. But Krista took on herself most of the blame and responsibility for this attack and eventual murder. After Colleen was dead, Krista said that she and this other person dragged the body to the more densely wooded area to try to hide it. They washed themselves up in a puddle before they walked to a gas station to wash up some more and dispose of Colleen's identification and the murder weapons. Krista gave police a few motives for the attack and for the murder. For one thing, Krista was pretty much one infraction away from getting kicked out of the program. Not only did she have nowhere to go, she didn't want to be separated from Tadaryl. She said Colleen kept trying to bait her into acting out, trying to trap her into having a fight, and held this possible expulsion over her head. One time, according to Krista, she even woke up to Colleen standing over her, holding a box cutter, possibly trying to set her up for something. Except... This story had actually been told before. Colleen had told it to her mother. She said she woke up and there was a girl standing over her bed who flashed a knife at her and accused her of trying to steal this boyfriend she barely knew. This was one of those reasons May told Colleen to report these people to the security at Job Corps. Krista took that story of what she did and then tried to reverse it to make it sound like Colleen did it to her. 
So the second motive that Krista gave for the fight was that Colleen had been hitting on to Daryl and she wanted to get her to leave to Daryl alone and leave herself alone. She just kept insisting that she did not plan on killing Colleen that night. It was when the attack started that Krista said she heard voices telling her that she had to kill Colleen or Colleen would tell on her. Not only was she going to get kicked out of Job Corps, she could actually go to jail. So even though she brought two deadly weapons with her, a box cutter and a meat cleaver, Krista's sticking with the not premeditated story. But that's not what the investigators were hearing from other people, including Kim, one of the other Job Corps students. She said Krista told her earlier that day that she planned to kill Colleen, And when asked why, Krista replied she just felt mean that day. Even though she also made a comment about trying to get a box cutter from Shadala, Kim did not see this as a real threat. So the authorities did believe that this was premeditated, even if Krista said it wasn't. And they also believed that Tadaryl was the he who was involved, and they believed Shadala was at least there. Tadaryl did make it easy on the investigators to connect him to being the male accomplice by also confessing. His story did more or less align with Krista's. He did put more of the blame on Krista and Shadala than on himself. He said that Krista had the meat cleaver and Shadala had the box cutter, but he did not initially have any weapon. That's not to say he denied all involvement. Tadaryl did admit to doing some things. He said he pushed and he slapped Colleen when she started grabbing at him during the attack. He admitted the box cutter was in his hand at some point, and he did cut her on the arm. He also admitted that he was the one who stopped Colleen from getting away. One time when she tried to run away, he tripped her. And another time, Colleen actually had made it some distance, but she slipped in the mud. And Tadaro was the one who went to where she was on the ground and pretty much dragged her back to where the attack was taking place. Tadaro said that he did yell for Krista to stop when she started hitting Colleen in the head with the chunk of asphalt. That was backed up by Shadala, that Tadaro did tell her, that's enough, you need to stop. But Krista said she wanted to see Colleen's brain flow. At this point, Tadaryl said he walked away from the scene because it was too much for him. When he came back, Colleen was nearly dead. It is remarkably convenient for Tadaryl's story that he walked away from the scene when the fatal wounds were inflicted. But turning around while someone kills someone else doesn't exactly make you less culpable. Tadaryl admitted that he was the one who carved the pentagram in Colleen's chest, He said he had been interested in Satanism since he was a child. He and Krista were both really into it. They even found Satanic things back at his dorm room. He was wearing a pentagram when he was arrested. That said, Tadaro said the killing was not directly related to that. He wasn't even aware there was any plan to kill Colleen beforehand, according to him. So this was not some Satanic sacrifice. He said he just thought Krista and Shadala were going to beat Colleen up and the knife and the box cutter were to scare her. So the connection between the murder, the pentagram, the Satanism, and even the proximity to Friday the 13th were just happenstance as far as he knew. 
According to Tadero, the last thing Krista said to Colleen was, do you know who did this to you? But Colleen was unconscious at this point and did not respond. After Colleen was dead, Krista danced around her body. I mentioned that Shadala had backed up Tadero's statement about how he told Krista at one point to stop the attack because Shadala also made a statement to the police, and in it, she also minimized her involvement, down until it sounded like she was pretty much just along for the ride, but not an active participant. The only evidence they had to contradict Shadala's story were aspects of Tadero's story, and his story was also designed to minimize his involvement. Unlike Tadero and Krista, Shadala did not leave bloody clothes where the police could find them. Either she was more or less telling the truth and wasn't very active in the attack, or she was smart enough to get rid of the evidence. This meant the physical evidence against Shadala was pretty much non-existent, and her confession was not nearly as incriminating as Krista's and Tadaro's were. Her eyewitness testimony, however used against Krista and Tadero could be very valuable. So the authorities at this point offered Shadala the deal of a lifetime. In exchange for her testimony against Krista and Tadero, she pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact. She was given a seven-year sentence. She had a credit for the year she spent in pretrial detention and then she was allowed to serve the remaining six years on probation. Like I said, deal of a lifetime. She basically walked in exchange for her testimony. And this was a controversial decision on the part of the state. But they needed slash wanted some of the information Shadala had, her firsthand account of witnessing this murder, because they were pursuing the death penalty. Just for Krista, though, she was 18 at the time of the murder and a legal adult. So Krista's trial came first in 1996. Had they offered her life in prison in exchange for a guilty plea, I think she may have taken it. There was no way she was going to be found not guilty, but the state wanted a death sentence, so her defense was mostly trying to stop that from happening. No detail was spared on the state side. The jury heard every graphic detail I went over and then some, along with images. Even Colleen's actual skull was presented in court to show the extent of the damage. They then took the bone fragment that Krista had kept and showed how it fit into the skull. We're not talking a mold or a graphic rendering of the skull. We're talking the actual skull. And I just have to imagine how hard that was for the family. Something that I found interesting about the trial that I think at the time wasn't really a huge deal, but we can see it more in a historic context, is that they brought in an expert to talk about the satanic angle. Now, the state did not believe or present this as some sort of satanic panic thing, but this was just a couple years after West Memphis 3, Satanic panic was definitely a factor in the criminal justice system. So it was interesting to me that they didn't bring in an expert to prove it did happen. They brought in an expert to say it didn't happen that way. 
the testimony was basically that the pentagram and even Krista's practices in Satanism was nothing more than adolescent dabbling, that the true motive here was rage and jealousy. For the defense's case, they were mostly focused on the premeditation angle. They're not denying what Krista did. They were trying to provide reasonable doubt to the jury so the jury can say maybe this was not premeditated. If they could give that to the jury, if this was not premeditated, it would not be eligible for the death penalty. Their case was that Krista was mentally unwell. She was under the influence of drugs. This led to poor impulse control, and as the attack continued, Krista was losing control more and more. While Krista acted happy dancing around after the murder, they had an expert testify that this was actually Krista just releasing emotion, not necessarily an indication of what that emotion was. But honestly, it's hard to get past the fact that Krista brought two weapons with her while claiming it wasn't premeditated. And as for the increasingly frenzied attack, there was evidence that's not what happened. Colleen tried to get away multiple times, nearly succeeding once or twice. Both of those instances gave a pause to the attack, a pause where Krista could have calmed down. Krista even stopped a few times on her own to just stand there and watch Colleen on the ground. She actually took breaks. At one point, Krista walked away because she thought she heard a noise and wanted to make sure the coast was clear. Then she came back and continued. Even the defense expert had to admit that there were points where Krista could have and probably should have calmed down if this attack really was just rage and emotion. If Krista lost complete control, how did she control herself enough to take breaks? The answer was that she didn't lose control. So not surprisingly, Krista was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. This made her eligible for the death penalty. At sentencing, the state didn't have much more to present than they had already presented. This was really just the chance for the defense to prove enough mitigating factors to try and save her life. They did present some evidence about Krista's mental health, but that has been complicated over the years. At the time, Krista had been diagnosed with severe borderline personality disorder. There are indications with later evaluations that she actually has mixed personality disorder. This means she has traits of various personality disorders, but not enough of any one of them to have a full diagnosis. Krista has also been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, organic brain damage, depressive disorder, and PTSD, which the jury didn't really hear a lot about that during the penalty phase of the trial. Most of what they heard was from family talking about Krista's abusive and unstable childhood. Both of her parents testified about their own shortcomings. Krista's mother, Carissa, took on pretty much all of the blame. Honestly, She's one of the only people involved in this case who appears to be truly remorseful for her role in the sequence of events that led to this. Like, deeply, deeply remorseful. Certainly more than Krista, who's the one who actually killed somebody. Another family member who testified was an aunt 
of Krista's. She was able to give a little bit more of an outsider account of Krista's upbringing, looking from the outside in, the role of someone who didn't have control over changing anything in the house, but saw how things were. But she also testified that Krista was a child that was very difficult and she didn't want her own children around her. I think the jury was left wondering what hope of rehabilitation would Krista actually have? After deliberation, the jury came back with their sentence recommendation, which was death. Krista Pike became the youngest woman sentenced to death in the U.S. since the reinstatement of the death penalty in the United States in 1976. The method of execution in Tennessee at the time was the electric chair. This had to have been a terrifying prospect, and Krista cried. She called out for her mother as she was led from the courtroom. But she was crying for herself, not from any sense of remorse. And we know this because she wrote a letter to Tadaryl right after. She asked someone who worked at the jail to pass it to him, and obviously the note instead went to the supervisor, who then turned it over to the DA. The note basically expressed love for Tadaryl and encouraged him to say that he lied in his statement. Krista's confession barely implicated him at all, and she offered to send him a copy of it for his use as his official version at his own trial. She also asked him to write to her. She said that she missed him. Then she wrote, You see what I get for trying to be nice to the hoe. I went ahead and bashed her brains out so she'd die quickly instead of letting her bleed to death and suffer more. And they effin' fry me. That's what Krista thought after her sentence was handed down. She called her victim a hoe. She said she should have been spared execution since she killed Colleen more quickly after she had already, by her admission, tortured her for over 30 minutes. The only person Krista Pike feels bad for is herself. So Tadaryl Ship's trial was held in July 1996 after Krista's was already complete. He was not facing the death penalty. He was only 17 when the murder occurred. Though it wasn't until 2004 that the Supreme Court ruled that minors charged as adults cannot be given the death penalty in the U.S., Tennessee already had their own law that outlawed it. Tadaro was found guilty and sentenced to life with the possibility of parole for the first-degree murder, plus he got 25 years for the conspiracy to commit murder charge. Tadaro will be eligible for parole in 2027 after 32 years in prison. Tadaro appealed, saying that the state had not proven that he knew Krista was planning on killing Colleen that night, and the evidence did not support a conviction of first-degree murder or the conspiracy charge. The conspiracy charge can only be supported if he conspired, and according to him, the state did not prove that. This appeal was denied. Krista, of course, also appealed. Death penalty cases get automatic appeals, which basically means they can't be barred for procedural reasons. The only way a death penalty appeal doesn't happen is if the defendant waives it. Her appellate team basically argued the same as to Daryl, no proof it was premeditated, no proof of a conspiracy. They then also argued why the death sentence was inappropriate. We've basically seen these before in a direct appeal, pretty standard, and it was denied. 
During her second round of appeals, Krista decided to drop it, accept her sentence, and have an execution date set. The judge allowed this, and her execution was set for August 2002. But Krista then changed her mind, and she started appealing again. As of today, Krista's appeals have all been exhausted, and now, in 2021, her attorneys are asking the Tennessee Supreme Court to commute her sentence to life in prison. One reason they're arguing is that her age at the time of the murder should be considered. Had the murder happened 10 months before it did, Krista would have been 17 and not eligible for the death penalty. So did she really mature and her brain really developed enough in those 10 months to suddenly make her crime worthy of a greater punishment? And I definitely see where they're going with this, but the truth is that a line is always going to be somewhere when we talk about age cutoffs. You don't suddenly wake up on your 18th birthday ready to vote, buy cigarettes, and go to war. But the line has to be somewhere. And while I agree on the face of it with Krista's attorneys that a troubled 18-year-old shouldn't get the death penalty just because they're not 17, I don't know how far they're going to get with this argument. My guess is not far. Largely because it's not exactly like Krista has been a model prisoner that they could hold up to the courts as an example of rehabilitation. Krista actually has another serious criminal conviction for an incident that happened in the prison. It happened in 2001 when there was a fire in the prison where Krista was being held. She was placed in a cell with two other prisoners during the evacuation. These were two women who didn't get along with each other, and Krista also didn't get along with one of them. Their names are Patricia Jones and Natasha Cornett, and they are also convicted murderers. Patricia had stabbed an 84-year-old woman to death and stole her belongings to trade for drugs. Natasha was in prison for her role in a very high-profile Tennessee case, the murder of the Lilylid family, a family of four who were carjacked, kidnapped, and shot by a group of teens. Only one of the children survived, and Natasha and her co-defendants all pleaded guilty. So we have three murderers who have issues with each other in the same cell. According to what Krista told her mother in a recorded jailhouse phone call afterwards, Patricia started talking crap to Natasha. Krista said it happened all the time and she hated it. Then she saw Patricia, according to her, raise her fist like she was going to hit Natasha, so Krista jumped in. She just so happened to have a length of cord with her. Some reports say it was a shoestring, others say it was the drawstring that she took out of a pair of pants. Using this cord, she started to strangle Patricia. Krista said that Patricia came within 30 seconds of death because she was unconscious and twitching when Krista was pulled off of her. And if she had the chance to do it again, Krista said she would succeed with her second attempt. Though Krista would later try to argue that this was defense of another, she was defending Natasha, she said something else in that phone call to her mother. She said she now knew what premeditated murder was because she premeditated the crap out of that attack versus what had happened with Colleen Slemmer. Krista was convicted of attempted murder in 2004, having admitted to the attack being premeditated on that phone call. She was given a 25-year sentence, which didn't change much for her since she was already on death row. Then in 2012, Krista was back in the headlines. 
Christo was a prisoner who had a lot of pen pals, and one of them was a man named Donald Kohut. They had written to each other for a few years, but it had only been within the last year or so that Donald was traveling from his home in New Jersey to visit Krista in prison. During one of these visits, Donald met with a guard named Justin Heflin. Justin agreed to assist with Krista's escape from prison for a price. Since Krista had no money, it has to be assumed Donald was going to be coughing up the cash and gifts requested by this guard. The attempt was foiled before it even really began because others caught wind of it. No offense to Donald and Justin, but Krista didn't exactly, allegedly, form a brain trust with these two. Both men were arrested for their roles in planning the escape. Donald was also indicted in New Jersey on some fraud-related crimes, including mortgage fraud and identity theft. He was sentenced to eight years in prison for the escape plan and was released in 2018. Justin Heflin had been charged with bribery, official misconduct, conspiracy to commit escape, and facilitation to commit escape, but he avoided jail time by cooperating with the police. Because there was no direct evidence of Krista's role with these plans, she was not charged. And at the time the escape plans were making news, something else was hitting the headlines. Krista Pike was selling murder Belia. So let's play a game where you all guess my view on glorifying killers by selling memorabilia about them. I'm sure everyone guessed and everyone won the game. Colleen's mother, May, came across the website that was selling these items. I would rather stub my toe every hour on the hour for the rest of my life than ever name this website or give it any publicity. It's a website that sells stuff that killers send in. A lot of the items sold are really just letters and postcards since convicted killers don't often have access to anything else and they certainly can't mail packages. May accused this website of allowing Krista to profit off the murder of Colleen. The site owner, however, has denied that he shares any of the profits with Krista, who he met in 1997. I am curious if a check of Krista's jail books and who put money on them over the years are going to support these claims that he didn't share any money with her. Just curious. Obviously, I have no ability to fact check this, but I wish someone would. In 2002, the owner of this website and Krista decided to get married. They ended up not going through with it, and he claimed it's because it was a marriage of convenience. Her execution date had been set, and he wanted to have rights over her life story after she died. But when the execution was stayed, when Krista decided to start her appeals again, they broke off the wedding plans. Obviously, this was a romance for the ages. But there may soon be a new execution date. Like I said, Krista's appeals have been exhausted. There are a lot of opinions out there that Krista Pike is essentially a serial killer who happened to get caught after her first kill, and she was pulled off the inmate she intended to make her second victim. I will go out on a limb and say the only reason Krista hasn't killed or tried to kill anyone else in prison is because she's alone in her cell almost all of the time. She just doesn't have the opportunity. We see behaviors of a thrill killer in what Krista did, 
after she attempted the murder of Patricia Jones and after the murder of Colleen Slemmer. When Krista called her mom from prison after she tried to strangle Patricia, she told her about how Patricia's eyes bugged out and about how her body was twitching as she strangled her. She laughed as she talked about it and about how she would do it again if she could. So did Krista really think her mom wanted to hear those details? Of course she didn't. Those details weren't for her. They were for Krista. She was reliving the thrill of almost killing someone. Then think about how she danced around after killing Colleen Slummer, how she bragged about it while smiling and laughing. She had reached down without flinching and pulled out a piece of Colleen's skull to keep as a trophy. She showed it off. She was getting a rush out of this. That trophy, by the way, has caused Colleen's family so much pain over the years. For a while, the state would not release Colleen's skull at all to the family. They needed to preserve it as evidence until Krista's appeals were over and there was no chance this was going back to trial. Once that hurdle was cleared, the skull was returned, minus the piece Krista took. That piece of evidence will continue to be held as Krista continues to fight her sentence trying to get it commuted. It will not be released until Krista is dead. Basically, until Krista dies, Colleen's remains will not be complete. In August of 2020, the state filed a motion to set an execution date so that the day would come sooner rather than later. Because of delays and extensions, it wasn't until June 2021 that her attorneys were able to file their response, and they are asking for the sentence to be commuted to life in prison. The information in this response is what we've already heard about her upbringing and her mental health. They did want to have her evaluated again, but because of the pandemic, they were not able to get their new mental health expert into the prison to interview her, so that is all pending. Colleen Slemmer's father has already passed away, but her mother continues to oppose commuting the sentence and wants an execution date set for as soon as possible. And should that happen, I will keep you posted. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.